What is up, ladies and gentlemen? My name is Austin Jardine, and this is the Vanguard Project Podcast. Welcome to the one-year anniversary episode and an interview that I've been working on uh, nearly from the start. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in, for the feedback, for subscribing and helping me shape this show into what it is today. I am truly, truly humbled and extremely appreciative of of all of you, uh, my friends, my family, my sponsors, and uh, everyone in between helping me get connected and push forward and turn this into what it is today. But as we get into today's episode, for those of you uh, maybe joining for the first time, welcome to the party. Uh, the goal of my podcast is, uh, or this podcast is, uh, is best summed up as growth through story and strength through community, where uh, my goal is to focus on uh, on telling folk stories, sitting down with them in hopes of sharing in their lessons learned, how they got to where they're at, uh, and some of the tidbits that they've learned along the way to hopefully get you uh, connected, excited about something, maybe provide you to something to chew on throughout the week, or maybe get you involved in a, in a new community. So in order to do this, uh, I do my best to uh, let the interviewee tell their story and uh, and hopefully ask some deeper questions again to gain clarification and understanding to uh, hopefully, like I said, give you something to chew on uh, throughout the week. That is to say, uh, the show is ultimately not about me rather than uh, or but acting kind of as that sounding board for uh, those on the other end of the mic. So with all that to say, uh, one year of doing this, it's crazy. I was doing like three episodes a week there for a little while. So uh, we're we're getting up there, pushing or getting close to 100. So I'm really excited uh, to continue pushing forward. But uh, I do want to give a huge shout out to a today's show sponsor, and that would be uh, Everly Stock. Uh, the boys at Everly Stocks are a remarkable crew. Uh, they've partnered with me in several adventures over the years, and uh, honestly, I can't say enough good things about them, let alone the gear. Uh, guys, thank you. Uh, if you haven't yet, please go to everlystock.com. Find yourself some gear, uh, the best gear out there, honestly. I-, I think it's phenomenal. I use just a ton of different gear for whatever it is that I'm doing. You know, lately I've been running uh, the Owyhee Field shirt. I had a match that I, I wore that out to a couple weeks ago. I also wear it to the office. Uh, I've got several Bruno hoodies that I like to take out, whether I'm hiking or camping and hunting, whatever the case may be. Uh, I've got my half track for matches. I've got a vapor pack for hunting. And honestly, I can't say enough good things about them. So be sure to go to everlystock.com. Find the gear that you need. Give them a call at the retail store too. Uh, call Tucker and uh, get a deal. Get hooked up. But uh, you will be beyond happy with the quality and capability of the gear at Everly Stock. And uh, honestly, uh, joining in on the family, uh, and uh, it's it's well worth it. So without further ado, I'm going to stop talking. This is an awesome episode. I'm so excited. Jack, thank you again, and uh, David for getting us connected, and Mike. But without further ado, let's roll an awesome episode with Mr. Jack Carr. What is up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to the Vanguard Project. My name is Austin Jardine, and I am really excited. Today's episode is one that I've been looking forward to uh, with Mr. Jack Carr. Uh, I've been, uh, you know, badgering your publicist for a little while now to uh, to sit down with you as you finish up your book. So I'm excited. You know, you've uh, you've got a lot of life experience, and you're doing some really fun stuff. I'm a big fan of your books, and uh, soon to be a big fan of the uh, the Amazon series. So I'm super. Super excited, but I don't want to steal your intro away, man. So if you don't mind, uh, maybe just introducing yourself 
kind of like uh, as you normally would in whatever form you're typically in. And I'll start asking questions and getting to know you a little bit. Yeah, no, sounds good. Um, yeah. So two things I want to do with my life were serve my country specifically as a SEAL and then write thrillers. Because back when I was growing up, you couldn't uh, just Google Navy SEAL and get a ton of information. You had to go to the library, had to do research. And back then, a lot of information that I got after I exhausted all the nonfiction sources, um, which were uh, not very were very extensive back then. You could actually read everything really about special operations. Um, obviously, you can't do that today because uh, you'll just read forever. But uh, I started reading thrillers by guys like Tom Clancy and David Morrell and Nelson DeMille and AJ Quinnell and JC Pollock and Mark Olden, Louis Lamore, uh, later Stephen Hunter, um, and just was a fan of the genre and knew that after my time in the military, I'd write those same kind of thrillers that I was enjoying so much as a kid. Uh, then later I'd find Daniel Silva as I got older when he started writing and then Vince Flynn and Brad Thor, um, later Mark Graney. So I've, I've just always wanted to do this. And uh, so when it came time to, to transition out of the Navy and into the private sector, I knew exactly what I was going to do. Uh, my mission was taking care of my family and my passion was writing. So I put those two together and uh, off we go to the races so that's uh yeah that's that's the background that's pretty sweet that seems like a pretty strong sense of direction i mean did you maybe starting at the beginning you know kind of like i was telling you i like to do my best to help kind of drive the story of it why why the navy did you grow up in a navy family did you you said you always knew that you wanted to be a navy seal was that just ingratiating you from the beginning yeah so i think it was just something that flowed through my veins from the earliest of ages, but uh, my grandfather was killed in World War II. He was a fighter pilot, uh, Corsair, which is the uh, plane that had the gold wings that would fold up uh, on aircraft carriers. Um, there's a show on in the late seventies, early eighties called black sheep squadron with Robert Conrad playing Pappy Boynton. And, uh, that was the same plane. My grandfather flew, my grandfather was Marine. And, um, so I grew up with that show. That was a connection to him. Then I had his, uh, silk maps. They used to give aviators back then. Uh, they didn't use paper maps because if you hit the water, the paper obviously would disintegrate, but silk just got wet. So I had those maps. I had his wings. I had his medals, pictures of him and his squadron. So there was just this, uh, uh, this, yeah, there was this uh, innate um, desire, obligation to, to serve. I just knew that that was, that was my path. Um, and I never, never wavered from it. I didn't know exactly what I was going to do until I was at the ripe old age of seven when I found out. <laughs> so as soon as I found out about SEALs, then, uh, then my path was, was set and went down to the library with my mom, did some research, uh, found out about what SEALs were, frogmen, underwater demolition teams. Um, and then that uh, took me down the path into special operations. And then those books I talked about earlier that I started reading, probably about age 10 or so, I started reading the same books that, were, that my parents were, were reading. Um, the protagonists back then usually had backgrounds in Vietnam. So they were either Marine snipers or Navy SEALs or Army Special Forces or CIA paramilitary guys. Um, and that was the kind of the typical background for, uh, for an eighties action hero. And, uh, so that's the, that's the background I wanted in real life one day. So I did everything I could to train physically, mentally for, uh, for what was ahead. And uh, I came to reading as a fan. Uh, so first and foremost, I'm a fan of the genre, which essentially made me a student of the genre growing up. So I didn't just wake up one day as I was getting ready to 
get out of the military and say, oh, I think I'm going to give this writing thing a try. <laughs> um, I had a whole lifetime of foundation built. And what I think was important about that is that I got to read those books back then. So right as they were written. So during that time frame, and I'm young, so I'm not looking through at these books through the lens of someone who is overly cynical. Um, there aren't too, so many filters in place and I'm just enjoying them for what they are in the time in which they're written. So I don't have to yeah. look back 30 years and then try to put myself in 1985 when like, why is someone looking for a payphone or what is, you know, all the, those sorts of things. Um, and uh, so I get, got to enjoy them for what they were and uh, what they are. Uh, and they've always been part of me. Um, and just, uh, I think what I recognized early on was the difference between something that was good and great was that what was great had a heart. And that's mm. something you really can't put a, uh, you can't really spell out how to give something heart. It either has it or it doesn't. And that's the, that's the magic that I'm trying to uh, infuse into the pages and then, uh, you know, give to, to other people. Yeah. So that's an interesting point because um, having heart and you, you mentioned something about um, having kind of the sense of obligation and I'm probably blending, you know, what you're trying to put together in story form versus how you lived life a little bit, but how did you bring that sense of heart relative to obligation when it came to choosing the Navy and serving? I feel yeah. like that they're a little yeah. different. Those, uh, those books that I read, those, uh, whether it was a magazine article or a chapter in a book or a, a newspaper article, or uh, back then when there was a couple, couple VHF or VHS or Betamax tapes that you could order from the back of Soldier of Fortune magazine or Gung Ho magazine that uh, showed some footage of SEALs in Vietnam, showed some training. Uh, and my takeaways from all that research that I did was, whether it's true or not, is that uh, SEALs were some of the toughest special operators in the world. And the training was some of the hardest ever devised by a modern military. Yeah. So that was uh, that was all the recruiting that I needed. And <laughs> of course, wanted to, to test myself in that crucible of BUDS SEAL training hell week. Uh, and then of course, what I thought we were going to do when we got to our first SEAL teams was uh, zip off into the night and uh, go save the world and come back in time for beers the next day. And uh, that was not how it was in the late nineties. When you got to your SEAL team, you were a new guy and did new guy things. Um, it wasn't until after September 11th that we really started to do what we thought we were going to do when we got to the SEAL teams. And after September 11th, it was really just off to the races. Yeah. Yeah. So when you started with the SEAL teams then, um, and I've talked to, I talked to Terry a couple months ago and, you know, kind of got the lay of the land of how things work. You know, when you started in the SEAL teams, was it everything that you had hoped it would be, you know, as far as that sense of fulfillment, the drive kind of, did you feel like that um, all of the books and research that you had done, you felt like had the same type of heart that you were looking for? Well, I mean, I mean, no, I got to that SEAL team and we didn't go off and do those missions. We didn't uh, have the golden Connex box open. We had gear that looked like someone had just gone through an REI catalog for the first time and picked whatever boots kind of they thought looked cool. Um, and uh, so that, that part was, it was interesting. Uh, we really hadn't been in sustained combat operations since Vietnam. We had flashpoints here and there, uh, Grenada, Panama, uh, Desert One, um, Mogadishu. But uh, if you weren't in those places, then if you also weren't in Vietnam, then uh, then you really hadn't been in sustained combat operations. So very few people were really um, on the ground in Mogadishu, on the ground in Panama, on the ground in Grenada. Um, so so we were really living off the, uh, the reputation and using the tactics, techniques, and procedures that those before us in Vietnam had developed. 
And what we did was we took those tactics, techniques, and procedures, and we dropped them into a mountain environment, into an urban environment. Um, And then really, it took September 11th to realize that, hey, those tactics needed to be to evolve and evolve quickly, um, because what you do in the jungle might not necessarily be the best tactic on a mountain at 10,000 feet in Afghanistan, um, or in the streets of Ramadi, the Mm -hmm. buildings and all the rest of it. So we we adapt and the enemy is is doing the same thing. Um, But uh, but yeah, after September 11th, it was game on and um and that was yeah that's what we all we all came in to do at least that's at least that's what i came in to do yeah yeah do some crazy fun stuff so throughout that whole time then i mean kind of knowing that you wanted to continue writing and have this type of background as you're going through you know different operations and assignments are you trying to put piece together kind of your resume as a as a writer or a future thriller writer or are you kind of just rolling with the punches yeah, no, at all, not at all. I was totally focused on the task at hand, on the mission at hand, being the best operator I could be, being the best leader I could be. Um, I just knew that after that time was done, then I'd write thrillers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wasn't really thinking about that. I wasn't writing down story ideas. I wasn't studying how to do it. I just knew that that is what I will do. Um, but uh, I didn't realize how closely connected what I was doing the SEAL teams would be to the writing. Okay. Uh, and uh, so it wasn't a that wasn't a plan. But like everything in life, doesn't matter what it is, it's, it's a foundation from which to build and, and move forward. So all that reading that I did uh, as a kid and continued to do over my time in the SEAL teams, all the thrillers, all the nonfiction works on warfare, on insurgencies, on counterinsurgencies, on terrorism, um, that academic study of warfare, uh, the practical application of that downrange in Iraq and Afghanistan and the Southern Philippines, um, places like that, uh, all inform my writing today so those experiences what it feels like to be a sniper what it feels like to be ambushed uh, what it feels like to be in a firefight what it feels like to put together a targeting package against a cell that is responsible for the deaths of americans uh, like all those feelings and emotions inform the feelings and emotions of my main character mm-hmm. but in a fictional narrative so if the uh the emotions and feelings seem real to the reader that's because they are real they come from a real place it's not me sitting down with a sniper who was in ramadi and saying hey what was it like to to do that what was it like to x y or z what did that feel like and then kind of processing that through whatever filters or biases I have, other interviews I may have done with other snipers, uh, other movies I've seen, books I've read, that sort of a thing. It's all, there's none of that. It all comes uh, right from the heart. So it comes right from how I felt in those situations, although applied to a fictional narrative. So yeah. uh, I think really that's really what made the, or makes the books stand out to people uh, are those feelings and emotions, are those uh, the realities of combat that I, that I weave in to the storyline, which makes them uh, extremely personal, which also makes the uh, the bad reviews hurt more. It's not like, it's not like you can be like, ah, so-and-so told me this is a sniper in Ramadi or leading an assault team in Afghanistan. And oh, I guess I got it wrong or whatever. Um, no, it's all, it's all so personal. So that's why the, uh, the, the, the zingers hurt. Yeah. Well, they they might funny. otherwise. Yeah. It's funny. Cause like I listen I listen to books, right? Like I spend a lot of time running around town doing all sorts of stuff and I have a really hard time sitting down for too long to read so i listen to the books and it's always funny because every now and then like the emotion you can feel it coming up and you'll be driving through traffic and like you're white knuckling it going you know one mile an hour and you're like what's going on oh man when uh when it comes to order does a great job the narrator yeah job bring him to life and and audiobooks are the fastest growing segment of publishing they'll probably yeah well it's nuts because that's it will a good narrator will make or break an audiobook so 
um when you talked about or talk about um kind of bringing your real life experience and the emotion into writing you know to the fictional narrative what was it like for you to kind of relive some of your experiences and put it i guess rewrite it in a way that you could relate to others what well, what did that process look like for you yeah it was very therapeutic uh, and i didn't really necessarily uh think that would be the case at the outset uh, i just sat down to write uh write a great book and write the best book i could but it was evident from the first sentence that uh, a lot of my personal experience was going to be woven in there. And I didn't really think that. I thought the technical stuff, I'm like, yeah, sure. You know, uh, sniper weapon systems and ballistics and all the rest of it. But I didn't really realize that uh, how much emotion was going to be in there. Um, and it's therapeutic, not in the sense that uh, I made bad, bad decisions downrange or things didn't work out. Like I got extremely lucky downrange with the decisions that I made, but uh, uh, more so um, from the fact that I get to examine what we've been doing. And back then it was 16 years at war, uh, when I wrote that first book, uh, and think about those mistakes, think about our senior level leaders and what they should have done better, what their obligation was to the troops. Uh, and that was to study the past and make good, wise decisions uh, going forward. Uh, and they failed at that time and time again. There's a great book out now, came out in the fall called The Afghanistan Papers, where they, and I've had uh, the, the author there, Craig Whitlock, on my podcast, Danger Close. And they, he juxtaposes interviews with these senior level leaders who are coming back from Afghanistan in particular, and the, the, had conversations for an oral history that they thought would remain classified. And then he juxtaposes that to what they were saying in front of Congress to their troops, therefore to the American people. And what they were saying was 180 out from one another. So, um, so having served downrange and being part of that generation, uh, obviously, uh, <clears throat> I get to, I get to, uh, take people out <laughs> in some pretty vicious ways that uh, I get to hold them accountable through the, uh, the medium of popular fiction uh, <laughs> than doing it for real, because really what our senior level leaders have done is fail upward uh, from the beginning. Very few people have been held accountable. One only comes to mind, I think it was 2009 for uh, criticizing what was going on. And not even criticizing, I mean, it was very bland what he said. It was a, a general in charge of Afghanistan and said something like, hey, this isn't going very well. Uh, and he was quietly ushered out a couple months later. And then the next guy comes in and says, all we need is more money. All we need is more resources, more troops. Um, we're going to meeting our goals. And they say the same things over and over in front of Congress. Um, so, so for me, that's, uh, yeah, that's something I get to deal with in the, the pages of the novels and, and uh, it keeps everybody healthy and sane. Yeah. Yeah. So when you started writing then, I mean, was your goal, I mean, your goal obviously was right to write the best book possible, but was it, was it really to bring out the emotion, just tell a particular story, kind of share your feelings? I mean, what were you seeking to, to teach or share? Yeah. At first it was just a, uh, a great story. Uh, that was how I, how it started. And uh, then it, it became, became a little, I don't know, I guess a little more than that. Um, uh, you're always trying to get get better with each sentence, with each paragraph, with each chapter. Trying to go back and edit and uh, and refine them to the best as the best you possibly can, so the the product that goes out is the best it can possibly be, because that's obviously what you owe your your readership and those who are trusting you with their time by either listening to it on an audiobook or spending time in in the pages. But uh, but yeah, it became so personal, and uh, but that wasn't the intent 
at the outset. And the, I guess the only, yeah, the only goal was to write the best story I possibly could. Uh, but then it kind of morphed into something that was, yeah, this intensely personal experience. And like I said, there's a thousands of books out there that cross the desks at Simon and Schuster uh, every year. And this one stood out, first one stood out and, uh, and they continued it to stand out to, uh, to Simon and Schuster. And they're, they're extremely happy as am I, they gave me my, my shot, uh, which is why uh, I decided to do well, I didn't decide early on. I didn't really realize you had to do anything other than write as a, as an author. I thought you just wrote and maybe yeah. you did a few, maybe two, uh, maybe you went on a book tour for five days, but that was it. And then you could get back to writing. And maybe that was how it was in 1985, 95, <laughs> 75, 65, certainly, but uh, not today. Uh, today there's that authenticity piece uh, that is because of social media is so important. Um, and obviously coming from the background that I do, that lends credibility to the storylines. So, it, it, I mean, it was a, a confluence of the rise of social media, uh, engagement, um, and being able to thank people for taking a risk on me, um, but also giving them a glimpse behind the curtain as to, to what, uh, as to that background, as to that writing process, as to what I'm putting into these things. And you couldn't have done that 30 years ago. Yeah. It just didn't exist. You relied on your publicist, publicist and your publisher and whatever they were going to do for you, they were going to do for you. Um, and there wasn't really a way to do anything, anything else. Well, today there is. Um, you can engage on social media. You can provide value through these different platforms, through website, through newsletter, through Instagram, through Facebook, through Twitter, uh, through a podcast. Um, and, uh, and those things you couldn't build on your own, but now you can. Now there are tools that allow you to do that. So I recognize that early on, just like looking at the battle space, looking for, uh, for gaps in the enemy's defenses, looking for opportunities to capitalize on momentum, constantly adapting. So I just looked at, um, at this space with that that same lens mm -hmm. and, uh, and applied that I guess that I don't know that skill set I guess to it but I didn't have any baggage also I didn't come from a company that's like oh this is how we marketed it you know whatever Apple or you know I don't know whatever GM whatever it might be um, I didn't have any of that so I had no background and didn't read any books on it I just looked at the space and saw oh uh, here's some things that I can do to help beat up uh, help um, help build up this readership and that's what I owe Simon and Schuster because they gave me my shot they invested in me and uh, I'm going to prove to them that I was a good good investment and that's why I do all these other things um, uh, to to engage and to thank people uh, for allowing me to do what I, I love to do which is right. Yeah, that's interesting. Kind of thinking about it as I, I like the, the verbiage of battle space, right? What did you do, I guess, to analyze that? Because I, I feel like in this day and age, it is extremely overwhelming to sit down and say, how do I make myself different? Because that's, that's effectively what you did, right? Is, is how do I how do I market myself in a different way to show my appreciation and value to, you know, my customers and also my, for lack of a better term, employer, right? or the public or the publishing company, right? How did you sit down and kind of define what, what you could do differently? If that question makes sense. Yeah, no, I didn't look at it as, Hey, how can I be different? Mm -hmm. I just looked at it as uh, Hey, what makes sense? What's uh, I just applied some common sense to, uh, to the space. And I didn't really see, uh, you know, I looked at what other authors were doing. Cause that makes sense. You know, you're going into a space, you want to look at some other authors' websites and, you know, kind of, okay, gosh. Okay. Okay. Fine. But, uh, but there was so much more, that someone could do today. Uh, like there's a reason that this comes in a different, in different packaging than my Blackberry, like as much thought goes into the packaging for an iPhone as goes into what's, what it actually does, what's inside yeah. of this thing. Um, Red Bull doesn't just 
throw a drink out there, they have their campaigns around it to, to help launch that, that drink. Um, <clears throat> so I took things from, from other industries uh, also and, uh, and applied them to publishing. Um, I noted that, uh, that publishing has been around for a while. Um, and a lot of times businesses that have been around for a while are slower to adapt to a changing landscape because it's working for them. Um, and, uh, and it's like, a, like an aircraft carrier. It's very hard to turn an aircraft carrier. It takes a little time. Uh, but if you're a little, you know, you're a little speedboat type of a thing, uh, you can maneuver a little bit more. So I'm, I looked at myself as just on that, uh, uh, that smaller, smaller boat that's highly maneuverable, very fast. Um, and, uh, and I have the resources now, Simon & Schuster, to do those things that they do very well. Um, so to do those legacy media type things that I can't do, like I have no idea how to get an AM radio interview, no idea how to get on a morning, a morning talk show, uh, any of those things, no clue. Um, uh, Publishers Weekly, like some of those, those type of, of uh, um, publications, no clue. Um, but what I do know is that uh, I have friends in the hunting space, friends in the tactical shooting space, um, who have podcasts, who have, uh, who have Instagram. Um, and so, uh, so that side, uh, doing this right now, this is very non-traditional type of a thing for, uh, for a publishing house to, to do, but it's very natural for, for me to do. So, well, I can leverage the, the new media just based on looking at the battle space and the landscape, uh, Simon Schuster can do the legacy side and it is a, an amazing partnership. I just could not be more thrilled. My publicist is incredible. I love working with him each and every day. Uh, David Brown, amazing guy. Uh, I love my publisher my editor. She's a fantastic, um, gave me my shot. I'll be forever grateful. Um, and, uh, but it's an, it's an incredible partnership, but at its base, you have to have that product. That product has to be the best that it can possibly be. And you have to connect with an audience. Um, and very few authors, books, characters do that. So, uh, anyway, I just feel very fortunate each and every day I wake up. Yeah. So when it comes to working with, I guess we'll call your, your type of skill, maybe the new skill versus the legacy skills, the skill sets, right? What was maybe the most challenging thing to work on and mesh those two together to produce kind of your now area of reach, I guess we'll call it. Oh, time management and prioritization. <laughs> uh, that's an easy one. That's something I still struggle with. I'm still figuring out. I'm um, getting a little smarter with it. Uh, recently outsourced the, the merchandise side because we had merchandise stuff in the house, uh, in the kitchen, in the bedroom, in the living room. <laughs> like, uh, so we had all that. So that's recently been outsourced. But I, that has, stuff has to be better than than anything else out there. It can't be just oh, go to a, like a trinket, you know, whatever that you can check a glass and a mug and whatever else. No, uh, it has to be uh, the best of everything. Totally different than anyone else is doing in the space. Um, so that's now outsourced, and that was that was like crazy. My wife's printing labels and stuff in boxes <laughs> for service, like chaos. Um, so there's there was that, and yeah, just prioritizing that time, um, knowing that writing, I have to be all in and what kills me. And I don't know if this is true with everybody, but it certainly is with me is the interruptions. And so even if I'm writing, like now we have a, a new place that has a little more space. Um, but even if I'm writing here and then I'm hungry and I go downstairs or I want to grab a cup of coffee, and I'm still thinking about that problem on the written page and you get downstairs. Well, guess what? If you're not physically typing, uh, perhaps family members may think that you're not actually working. And uh, <laughs> that is not the case. So uh, for this last book, I rented Airbnbs uh, around town and, uh, and it was very, I found a great log cabin where everything was just right there. So it was just tiny, tiny little deck right there, a little uh, a pile of wood outside I could chop and throw in the wood burning stove, a 
small sofa right there by the wood burning stove, uh, just a little kitchen table, kitchen, uh, bedroom, bathroom, like that's it. So everything was right there. Everything was so efficient. So I could just go without interruption and just go, 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 go. Uh, and I love, I love that. So, um, so I need to figure out going forward. I'm always trying to improve, always trying to evolve, whether it's my writing, um, whether it's process, whatever it might be. Uh, I'm always trying to get better at everything that I do. So to include that, uh, that process. So I think what comes next is uh, having days where I am just, I wake up and I write till noon or one, and then I do all those other things that I talked about. So really segmenting the day. Uh, <laughs> so like the time that we're doing this, I would be writing. Yeah. Um, until this point, I feel like it's been a startup. And, um, uh, you know, you're in your garage, you say yes to everything. You're the person that's making the product. You're dealing with the customer service. You're dealing with the advertising. You're dealing with the budget. You're dealing with all those things that I had no idea you really needed to do as an author um, until about a month before the book came out, first book came out. And then I realized that, hey, this isn't just writing. There's a, there's a lot more involved if you want to continue to do what you love to do, which is the writing. Yeah. Uh, you have to do all those other things that, that support it. So, um, but I love learning new things. So, although I love the writing, um, I do enjoy learning new things and figuring out how to engage with people on the social platforms and, and all that. But it really all comes down to adding value no matter what I'm doing to somebody's life. So uh, whether it's a, a post on Instagram or a blog on the, on the website, uh, guest on the podcast, I want to add value to people's day with all of that. Cause you're not going to get that time back. Yeah. Yeah. That's one thing that, that I thoroughly enjoy, right. Is when you find, come across people that are more of the give, give, give mentality, right. Because something that I'm a big advocate for, right. Is one, you don't have a whole heck of a lot of time. And at the end of the day, literally all you have left to look back on is the life you lived and the stories you have, right? So, um, but I, I can appreciate that. So when you're talking about your process, like I'm a big process person, like I, everything has a place, it goes back in the place at the end of the day, I do my same routine, you know, are you, was it, is it hard for you to kind of put together this process to create space to write? I mean, you mentioned having to find Airbnbs. How long did it take for you to like develop the routine, I guess? Or still, still the developing, still, still yeah. developing it. Uh, I was working in the library for a while because you could uh, not rent, but you just kind of sign up for these study rooms at the local library and you go in there. But if there's people waiting, then you have a two hour limit. So I'd often get bumped out for like a kid working on a high school history project. Um, so it's really just about having that quiet, uh, uninterrupted time. And, uh, but not everybody's like that. Malcolm Gladwell, I know he kind of came up in the time when uh, in a newsroom, it was very loud. And uh, so he likes that background noise. So I've read that he likes to go to coffee houses in New York and he likes to have that, that background as he's, as he's typing away and working. Um, I don't, I like to just be alone. I don't need a great view, uh, anything like that. I can have a, just a blank wall in front of me. That's fine. Um, but it's just that quiet, uninterrupted time. So I'm still working on the process, but when it comes down to developing the stories, that's remained the same from the beginning. And I didn't read how to do it anywhere. I just did what came naturally, which was to come up with like a one page executive summary. And it first I come, came up with about six, seven, eight, nine different ones and wrote them all down, whether they were two paragraphs or four, um, just something that would be like reading the, the back of a book jacket uh, and will get you interested in it. So do I want to spend the next year of my life working on this? Is this, is this one page executive summary, these two paragraphs enough to get me excited about ex devoting a year? And at the time, I didn't know how long it was going to take. Now it's a year, but uh, then it was like the year, two years, however long it's going to take. I had no idea how long it was 
would take to write a novel. Um, but now it's a year because I'm on a deadline. Um, but I started the same way. I have that, uh, that one page executive summary. I have a title because I don't like the, the, to be thinking as I'm working, oh man, I better think of a good title for this or oh, the other titles have been so good. I got to really think of something. I don't like to waste that bandwidth on that. So I like to have that one page executive summary, have that title uh, and have a theme. And each book has had a specific theme to it to keep me on track. And uh, that first one was Revenge Without Constraint. Uh, the next one, True Believer, was Violent Redemption. Uh, the third one was The Dark Side of Man through the dynamic of Hunter and Hunted. Um, the last one, uh, The Devil's Hand, was looking at uh, the United States through the enemy's eyes. Uh, mm -hmm. What have they learned from our time on, our, in, on the ground in Iraq and Afghanistan? And then as I was writing it, our reaction to COVID, uh, reaction to a summer of civil unrest, a very contentious uh, election cycle, political season, that continues today. Um, what are they learning from those things? They're not just letting them pass. They're taking specific lessons and applying them to future battle plans, figuring out how to exploit these different weaknesses. So, uh, so that was the, the the fourth one, and then this one right here in the blood that comes out on on May seventeenth. Uh, this one really is a uh, sniper centric novel of violent redemption. And I always wanted to write that sniper centric novel, but yeah. not have it uh, devolve into that thing that we've seen time and time again in movies and in other books, which is like two snipers looking for each other hillside to hillside. And then they see each other at the last second and then they fire almost at the same time or goes through the scope into the eye, like that sort of a thing. I wanted to avoid that. Um, and so I, that was a, a challenge trying to figure out how to avoid something that I love. You know, I love that sniper on sniper engagement. So how do you do a sniper on sniper engagement, write a sniper centric novel with my background, but not fall into that trope. So uh, that was exciting <laughs> for me. And, uh, and I'm super fired up how it, uh, how it turned out. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited. I was telling you, you know, come before we start recording, I've done a little bit of long range shooting. And it's kind of fun because, you know, in the, the long range world, it's really funny because people get very nitpicky about how things are presented as far as like, dope data scopes reticles mags versus you know people like you know like it's always funny so i mean it's one thing i enjoy listening to these books is it's like it's very like accurate you know um so one thing i've been thinking of that, that i'm kind of interested in asking is that you've been a a consumer of the books right in all of the stories and different genres did you have any professional training or um education when it came to writing or did you just kind of say i've been a consumer i love it and I can, I can, I can do this. Yeah, I gave myself the best education I could possibly imagine. I don't think you could get a better education by actually signing up for a course in college or by majoring in something like that. Um, but reading my entire life, uh, all these books in the genre, all the best books in the genre, and by best, uh, I mean those who have been at the top of the charts for a long time, sustained 30, sometimes 40 year um, uh, professional careers writing. Um, uh, being a student from that perspective, I think was much more valuable for me anyway. I mean, everybody's probably different. Maybe somebody else can sign up for, for a course and be forced to read something and take a lesson from it. But, um, what I took was the magic and, uh, and just having that that connection to the magic that all those authors gave me growing up continue in many cases to, to give me today for, to those who are still around and still and still writing. Um, and I'm friends with with many of them today, like David Morrell, who created Rambo back in 1972. We're coming up on the 50th anniversary of that publication in May. And uh, yeah, now we, we talk quite frequently. And it's just an, an honor for for me to to uh, to call him a friend. Um, and that book has never been out of print, First Blood, over 50 years. Very few books can can say that. So, uh, yeah, it's very yeah, it's very humbling. 
very humbling. So yeah, from the perspective of a student, uh, and I'm always a student, whether it's of warfare, of writing, um, life in general, uh, I always come at it from the perspective of a student and not because anybody told me to or I read somewhere that's a good thing to do. It's just kind of naturally how I've uh, have approached life. So I'm uh, always learning, always getting better. It's what I what I owe the craft. I want to move the genre forward, even if it's just by a degree with, uh, with each and every book that I write. I want to improve with every book that I write. Um, and that's my um, I don't know, that's my mission to uh, to myself and uh, and uh, and to those who who've entrusted me with that time by by picking up the novels. Yeah. So in that same vein, what's been uh, the most rewarding thing for you, whether that be in the service or in writing? Ooh, that is a very good question. Um, uh, to put the most rewarding, I don't think really think of things in those um, in those terms. Um, it's a loaded question. Yeah, I don't really think of things in those terms. I guess that, uh, you know, knowing that I did the best job that I could for my guys downrange, um, knowing that, uh, uh, that I, I never did it, anything to make a make the next rank because I started enlisted and then became an officer later. So I was never doing anything through the lens of, oh, geez, I need to do X, Y, or Z or say X, Y, or Z to make the next rank or anything like that. Uh, that was never part of the, of the calculus. Um, so, so that's, I guess that's rewarding. Um, I was one of my guys uh, to do it better than I was doing it for them. Uh, so that's always, always a goal. Um, but yeah, so I guess that's rewarding. And then, yeah, to see the response to the books. I mean, that's rewarding. I really don't think of it, uh, you know, in those terms, sit around. <laughs> I'm just in a full on print all the time. So I don't really take a breath to think about it. But I guess it's uh, rewarding to know that uh, that the books are resonating with people. Um, and uh, and sometimes people reach out and say, hey, this paragraph really impacted me. I was having a hard time with what I did downrange. I uh, didn't really know how to, how to think about it and apply it to life going forward. And I read your book. And even though it's fiction, that really, this paragraph or two paragraphs really, really stood out to me. And thank you. You know, that I wasn't expecting that at all. And, uh, and so that's, I guess that's rewarding. Um, but once again, I don't really think of things in terms of, of rewards or, or anything like that. I just want to do the, do the best job I can. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, that that type of response, right? And I can see that kind of having talked to a lot of folks about kind of their experiences and life stories, right? And being able to approach something a little different, given given that you've impacted folks, you know, and helping them, you know, apply some of the lessons that you've learned and kind of move past some of their own experiences, right? Have you taken that and, and maybe wanting to support others or find ways to connect folks that are experiencing maybe the same troubles and issues? Uh, I mean, I connect people just naturally. Um, so that's, uh, that's always uh, fun to fun to do, I guess, or, um, I guess there's something that's rewarding, I guess, though I never thought of it like that. Um, uh, it's just something natural to, to do. You want to help good people. Um, so, so yeah, always, uh, yeah, always doing that. Um, yeah, we do, do a lot to give a lot to give back. That's for sure. Uh, and, uh, and I guess that's rewarding though. Once again, I don't think of it in those, in yeah. those um so yeah just like everybody else just trying to trying to do the best i can better yeah better every day right <laughs> earn, your, earn your trident every day is what's uh what we said in the teams okay so uh in the blood comes out uh may 17th that's right uh pre-order i was on your website this morning looks like it's available you can get it get your hands on it which is exciting um and then i guess now you're working on uh also terminalist on amazon prime which i'm super excited yeah. for yeah crazy so we finished up filming last august um and it was an incredible experience got to be a part of it the entire time and usually they like to get rid of the author right away because they don't want the author on set yelling like you ruined my vision <laughs> uh 
Um, so I was very lucky, very fortunate that uh, Chris Pratt and Antoine Fuqua uh, wanted me involved from the get go. So they linked me up with the showrunner, which is kind of like the uh, like the director in a feature film. A showrunner is in uh, in a series because a lot of, oftentimes you have multiple directors, and so the showrunner is managing all that and everything else. It's kind of like the you know the puppet master, a writer, a creator, a visionary, a leader. He's all of those things. Um, he has he has a lot on his plate. And uh, and David Gilio was the showrunner for this. Just an incredible guy. We're dear friends. We've I don't think a day has gone by that we haven't talked since December of 2019, since uh, since we started working on the first script together. And uh, to be clear, he wrote the first script, and I was a sponge. I was uh, I was there to assist. Um, but I always learned a ton from him. He like mentored me along through how what this screenwriting process looked like, um, how to do it, and uh, just learned a ton. So um, after that, Chris and Antoine and, and David, they took it to different studios and, and Amazon ended up uh, getting it because I think they paid the most. And, uh, and then we put a writer's room together and I uh, advised on all those scripts. And then, you know, even then there's no guarantee that it's going to get made. And then we started filming. And uh, so that was pretty cool. That first day of filming to see them, everybody get together. And then I came out like a week or week later or so after that first day uh, and was on set and seeing it all come together was just uh, was pretty wild. Um, so yeah, filmed from last March through August. And then it's been in post-production up until really a couple of weeks ago. And uh, now we have a, a teaser coming out soon and then a trailer and then the series drops on July 1st. Yeah, that's awesome. I bet. Did you... Did you expect to ever have your own TV series? I did. And that sounds very yeah. strange to say, but uh, if you're a child of the eighties, that you just expect, or I did anyway, that, Hey, I'm going to write New York times best-selling <laughs> novels and that option by an A-list star, exactly the one I want, which is what happened. Um, of course, in the eighties, you're not thinking TV, you're thinking movie, but, uh, but now I think that, uh, that doing it the way that we did it with an eight part series 100 percent uh the way to tell this story i mean you have eight hours to tell this thing rather than trying to cram everything into an hour and a half hour and 45 minutes something like that so so eight hours was uh, is definitely definitely the way to go and um yeah i couldn't be more thrilled with how it turned out yeah so knowing that you wanted to uh, have your own series or movie you know did you take like genuinely directed approaches to make that happen or were you kind of just like hey i'm writing as it happens, it'll happen. Yeah, I was just like, it's going to happen. I mean, never really wasted any time worried about it. I just knew that it would happen. Um, and that sounds strange to say, maybe, but, you know, maybe when you don't ever let go of your dreams as a kid, you just kind of, uh, and you put in the work, you just kind of think that that's just how it's going to go. And so that's, <laughs> That's what I thought. Um, and I wanted Chris to play the role because I thought that he was a guy. And this was before Guardians of the Galaxy, before Avengers, before uh, Jurassic World, before that rise to A-list prominence. Um, he was Andy Dwyer on Parks and Rec. And so I saw that transformation from uh, Parks and Rec to Zero Dark Thirty, that physical transformation. And uh, I thought, this is a guy. This is, this is a likable guy. He seems genuinely cool. Um, and he seems like an actor that needs to take a risk and do something different. Kind of like Tom Hanks did all the comedies in the eighties and then takes a risk with Philadelphia in the early nineties. And then he can do whatever he wants from then on. Cause he crushed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought Chris Pratt's that guy. And, uh, but I had no idea I had a connection to him at all. And I had no connection when I was writing, I had no connection in publishing, no connection to Hollywood, nothing. Um, and I didn't even worry about that looking back, but I wanted Chris to star and I wanted Antoine Fuqua to direct. 
as I wrote. And, uh, and that's what ended up happening. And I wanted Antoine because I love shooter. I love training day. Of course, uh, he did tears of the sun. He did replacement killers, uh, equalizer. And Antoine is one of my favorite people now. Like we are friends now. And he is like, I mean, he's a creator. He's a visionary, but he's genuinely uh, just a solid human being. Yeah. And, uh, just uh, I love being around him. So, um, so I got very lucky in that. Uh, it, before the book came out, my friend called from the SEAL teams. His name is Jared Shaw, and uh, he's like, "Hey, man, uh, uh, <laughs> I haven't talked to you for a while, but I always wanted to give you a call and thank you for what you did for me in the SEAL teams." And it had been about five years since I saw him, and uh, I couldn't even remember what it was. And he said, well, you're the only person that sat me down and talked to me about transitioning out of the military. You introduced me to people in the private sector. And uh, he said, I just wanted to thank you. And I said, no problem. How's it going? And he said, well, it's going great, but I heard you have a book coming out. And I said, yeah, it comes like out in four months, five months. Um, but I have this thing called a galley, which is like an early edition. And uh, I'd love to send you one. It's like a rough draft, but I'd love to send it to you. And he said, yeah, that'd be great, but I'd like it to give, I'd like to give it to a friend of mine. And I said, who's that? And he said, Chris Pratt. <laughs> like, okay. So <laughs> I just think of him playing the main role. So Jared gave it to Chris, Chris read it, and then uh, called the next week and wanted to option it. So, um, and then Antoine got it at the same time through another, uh, through other means. And, uh, and they both wanted it. So then Antoine called Chris and said, let's do this thing together. So I got the, the dream team, exactly, exactly who I wanted. So I, uh, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome so okay. did, did you uh, as you're right this is kind of a social engineering question but as mm -hmm. you started writing did you intentionally write something that you knew that you could relate back to Chris Pratt and Antoine or were you siloed in on your own effort no I just wanted to write the best book that I possibly could um you know like once again uh popular culture is extremely powerful it used to be our most uh powerful export from Hollywood. I think that's maybe changed recently just because of some of the things that are coming out. But um, it's, uh, I was very aware that uh, I guess it's just a part of me that hey, as I'm writing, but I wasn't like, this is going to translate over the screen because I know that it's going to be different. Um, First Blood, the book and First Blood, the movie, very different, both awesome. Uh, so I knew that anything that I write is going to be different uh, when you translate it to tell it visually. Right. Uh, and so there's a lot of trust when you, uh, when you option something and, and this could not be in better hands with Chris and Antoine and, and David and Gilio. but, uh, but yeah, so I didn't write it thinking, oh, how's this going to go? It's just naturally a part of it because of my upbringing, being a fan of obviously books and then of film and of television and really just by being a fan, um, and knowing that I was going to do things in those spaces one day, um, that just became a part, a natural part of me. It wasn't like, okay, I'll do X because it's going to translate over here. Like, no, not at all. It's, uh, the, the on the screen is different the vision to uh, telling a story visually is a different animal than telling it in the pages of a novel. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to, I know that we're kind of getting close to the hour and I want to be respectful of your time, but a couple of my favorite open-ended questions is throughout this whole process, you know, whether that be serving, uh, writing, now working on a movie or the TV series, what was, what would be something that maybe you wish you would have known going into it that could have either helped you or shaped you a little bit different, you know, kind of guided you a little bit better? Ooh, that is a very good question. Oh, I mean, I'm My always just trying to get better. So favorite not, question. Yeah, no, I'm always just trying to get better 
uh, at things. So that's very natural to want to improve. So we come back from an op overseas or in training and uh, we do a hot wash right away. So you get the guys around and talk about what went right, what went wrong, how you can do it better next time. And then you do a more formal AAR. So an after action review uh, where you take, put those things down on paper and, uh, and then disseminate it to the rest of the force so that everybody can get stronger. Uh, everybody can get better based on your successes and your failures more, more importantly. So you don't have to relearn those issue those uh, lessons in blood um geez i don't know maybe some of the maybe some of the business stuff but because you know, that's not my thing um uh maybe getting an assistant or a chief of staff earlier i'm still looking for for that to handle some of the things uh that can free me up just to write and create uh so maybe that's it I'm trying to find that I guess I still don't have one, so I'm still I'm still in the market. Um, uh, but I guess that might be it. I guess that'll be the one piece of the puzzle that's really missing is someone to to do that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, what makes yeah. a good chief of staff for you? That is a good question. I don't know. But, <laughs> uh, but I see like my buddy Evan Hafer at Black Rifle Coffee. Like he has an amazing guy that that uh, that helps him with uh, essentially uh, be more efficient and allows him to do what he does best. Um, so yeah, most, uh, uh, I just talked to Tim Kennedy yesterday on my podcast and, uh, Tim Kennedy makes martial art fighter and special forces guy. Um, and, uh, he has a book coming out soon. So we talked about that, but we talked also about the chief of staff. Uh, I was like, okay, I'm going to key in on that because I think, I think it's time. <laughs> uh, I think it's time to move out of the garage and, uh, and, uh, get somebody to handle some of the things that just allow me to. To, to write um, because that's that's what I love doing. Uh, that's what uh, what I'm good at. That's what I want to get better at. So uh, so yeah. So I think that's it. I guess that's it. But uh, I don't really. I mean, it's all about getting better. All about learning and and going forward. But there's not one thing I can pinpoint. Yeah. Fair. Okay. So then, um, as a writer, then you know, I, I I've never written. I've done small little blog posts, and you know, kind of this is my my writing is the podcast, I guess you could say, what advice would you have for somebody that maybe wants to start writing, you know, maybe get into publishing, whatever the case may be, right, that you were like, man, this is something that's super important that most people overlook or don't understand. Yeah, it's just writing it for yourself, writing it for your bedside table. And uh, don't be afraid to write a bad chapter. Don't be afraid to write a bad sentence. Don't be afraid, um, because you can go back and edit. Uh, but to go back and edit, you first have to have something written down. So don't worry about marketing. Don't worry about advertising. Don't worry about websites. Don't worry about a social media presence. I had none of those things as I was writing the first book. And I can't imagine what it would have been like if I was focused on building up a social media presence or uh, building up website traffic so that when I eventually get a book, I will have an audience that might buy it. Um, so that would have taken bandwidth that would not have gone into the novel. So I'd say, do not worry about any of that. Uh, and this might be horrible advice. I don't know, because a lot of people do get followings and then right. most people do it the opposite way that, uh, that I did it. So, um, but this is just how I did it. So take it or take it or leave it, you know, take what's useful, discard what's useless as, as Bruce Lee said. Um, but I wouldn't worry about any of that stuff. I would worry about the product, having that first, having the best product you possibly can. And anything else that distracts from that takes up bandwidth that is not going into making it the best product, the best book that it can possibly be. So I would say, write it, write it for your bedside table, write it for you. Don't worry about if anyone's going to like it or not, uh, get it done and then go back and edit and refine and make it as good as you can possibly get it. Then it's time to shop it, find an agent, 
make a website, that sort of a thing. Um, but you know, don't put the cart before the horse. Sure. There's, there's some wisdom there. Yeah, no, that's true. I like, I like that phrase right for your bedside table. I think that's a good way to approach a lot of things. If you're comfortable having it next to you, next to where you sleep at night, then you should probably be pretty comfortable with it or pretty yeah, confident. You know, some of the best things ever written might be on somebody's hard drive or uh, just print it out and be uh, in somebody's drawer in a file cabinet somewhere uh, because they think that it's not good enough or they're worried about how people might receive it. And, uh, you know, because writing it's art, it's so personal uh, and you unveil it, you know, you unveil it for the world. And now everybody gets to throw sticks and daggers because there's this thing called social media, which is double-edged. And uh, meaning back in the day, if you had a bad review somewhere, well, that was one bad review in a magazine, What if you saw it, uh, maybe two, maybe three, whatever. Now it can be hundreds. Because <laughs> uh, everybody uh, everybody gets to, gets to do that. Whereas back in the day, what would you have to do? Well, if you wanted to tell me how much you hated me or hated the book, you would have to find the address to the publisher. Then you would have to sit down and write a letter. Then you would have to address the envelope, put a stamp on it, put the letter in there, go and mail it. Then that letter would have to make its way to Simon & Schuster. It would have to go to the mail room. And then it would have to go in the right slot that would get it to the right person's desk. That person's assistant would, or executive editor would pick it up, look at it, perhaps open it, read it, probably throw it in the trash because it was from a crazy person. Or if maybe it was marginal, maybe it makes it to the desk of, uh, of the editor. And then she or he can look at it and maybe read one sentence and be like, wow, this person is a lunatic and never publishing this and throw it in the trash can. Well, today that letter goes on Amazon reviews. Yeah. <laughs> and that's just how it is. Thick skin. You got to have thick skin. Yeah, it's tough. I don't really have thick skin. So, you know, that's just part of it. But I think that also helps with the writing because it, it allows those emotions and feelings to get out there. But, you know, the other side of that is, uh, yeah, is, is those other things hurt. But, you know, that goes along with it. And I couldn't be more more thankful because there are certainly a lot more, way more positive reviews than are negative. It's just for whatever reason, as, as humans, or maybe maybe it's just me, uh, those bad ones stand out a little more. <laughs> that, that's okay, too. But the bad ones, I think, do even a better job of selling the book than the good ones because uh the bad ones will say too violent uh too much gear description or whatever <laughs> it is and for someone else reading that it's like oh one star too violent oh man too, oh, man. too much gear exactly yeah yeah so it, i think they sell it <laughs> thank you so thank you for everyone that yeah. writes so, so bad you want more bad reviews is what i'm hearing hey you know I'll, no, I'll I'm just... you. i think they're selling books having like a million one star reviews that would that would actually be really funny <laughs> yeah luckily it's not like that but <laughs> yeah the irony <laughs> awesome man well we covered i feel like um a lot of ground at a pretty high high level view um is there anything that we might have glazed over that you're like man i don't i don't get asked this often enough that i feel important to share or want to get out there that you know doesn't often get shared yeah, no, I mean, you did a, uh, a great job. Thank you for having me on. I sincerely appreciate it. Um, but yeah, the main, I guess one thing is that uh, something I try to share with my kids, which is uh, never miss an opportunity to make somebody's day. Um, you know, just like with my friend, Jared, if I hadn't I had him in my office and and sat him down and uh, talked to him about that transition. I introduced him to people in the private sector and taking time out of my day to do that. And I never expected any return. You know, I just wanted to help a good guy. Um, well, Chris Pratt might not even know that this existed. Uh, we wouldn't have had 350 people on set every day during COVID that uh, were employed during a time frame when it was a little more difficult to uh, to find a job. 
um, and we wouldn't have this awesome show coming out on Amazon Prime on July 1st. So um, I guess if, if there's anything, I guess that's it. Okay, perfect. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I guess uh, you, you made my day. I've been looking forward to this for a while. So <laughs> uh, thanks for having me on. I, I appreciate it. I mean, word of mouth is, uh, is the most important part of all of this as far as marketing goes. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's so powerful. And 30 years ago, it would have been around a water cooler uh, with two people, three people on a smoke break, you know, outside. And today it's, uh, it's this, it's uh, somebody saying, Hey, I, I just dropped, read this book and it was awesome. And sharing it with their two followers on Instagram or their 10 followers or their 35 million and everything in between. So it's, uh, it's that word of mouth. That's, uh, that's real and authentic and organic. That's uh, grassroots. And I think that's why that's uh why this has been, you know, so, so powerful and so many people uh, know about it. It certainly wasn't um, because of an ad that was taken out anywhere because there were none. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I sympathize with the exponential growth of word of mouth. That's how I've gotten to where I'm at with this. So Jack, once again, man, thank you for taking the time and sitting down with me. I know that you are incredibly busy right now, but I, I truly appreciate the time sitting down, talking with me. I was looking forward to this episode for a very, very long time. So it was great getting to know you, chatting. I uh, hope to connect at some point again in the future. David, once again, thank you for letting me annoy you uh, as we uh, as we got connected and uh, kind of interacted over the past couple of months getting this set up. But everyone listening, I hope you all uh, took some good information away. Uh, maybe got something, like I said in the beginning, to chew on and uh, and took something, uh, something interesting to apply to life today. But otherwise, I hope you all have a wonderful week and we will catch you next time. 